3, this is on the topic of biblical theology. So what I'm going to say dovetails very nicely with what um, Nathan just taught about. Um, there, there are two things I want to do in this talk to help sort of give the scope of what this thing called biblical theology is. The first part is going to be about definition. The term biblical theology is a little squirrely to define, and I'm going to attempt to briefly give you a concept of what I mean when I say biblical theology, what a lot of people tend to mean when they talk about this term. And then I want to do a demonstration. I want to uh, take a look at a passage from Scripture, much like what Nathan did with Second uh, Kings. I want to do with uh, a, few, a few spots out of First Peter. So definition and demonstration is my goal here. Um, can we pray before we start? Lord, we pause and give you thanks once again. Uh, we are delighted to be in, the, in your presence here uh, and together as a community of men who care about um, your glory, who care about your kingdom, and who want to serve you well. And so I pray uh, that this talk would be... Um, an instrument to that end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so I, I mentioned that biblical theology is a squirrely term, and I don't think I have to interpret that uh, designation in this company. Everybody's seen a squirrel run around on a road, and uh, it tends to, uh, if you were to try to catch a squirrel, it would be, be pretty difficult to do, and it's kind of difficult to define biblical theology because it's used in so many various ways and has uh, has become a, a bigger topic of discussion in academic circles, but also in the church. And um, if you were really to take a step back and look at the last century um, and, the, and the theological discussions that have been had both in the academy and in the church, um, you'll see that this notion of biblical theology has taken a prominent, uh, has come to a prominent place. And is real, I think the really, really the day is dawning for biblical theology in the church. Just look at conference talks among especially Reformed uh, groups like the Gospel Coalition or Together for the Gospel, which is a group of uh, Reformed pastors who come together and have a conference. The talks on biblical theology, are dom- they dominate a lot of the discussion. So I think it's just an indication that biblical theology is becoming more and more of an interest to the church, not just to the academy. And, they're, and I think that's a good thing. And there are reasons for that, and hopefully we'll talk about a few of those. Um, so, biblical theology, um, theology, what is theology? How would you define that term, just at its most basic level? Theology is, yeah, the, the study of God, the discor- discourse about God. Um, and so, so, in this sense, everyone at some level is a theologian. Everybody has something to say about God, whether they hate him love him, don't know anything about him, whatever the case may be. So theology at its basic level is discourse about God. Um, in one sense, though, it, it can refer to, um, when, we, when we talk about theologians in a technical sense, right, we're talking really about those who have uh, rigorous academic conversations about God or, or do research about the things of God, either whether from a biblical perspective or not. So we also use it in some more narrow senses. Um, Studying God in a more rigorous, academically thorough way is sometimes what we mean when we say I'm doing theology or I'm speaking about theology. Um, In in English usage, it's interesting, if you go on to the other side of the Atlantic and you read books about theology from the British authors, um, they mean something a little different than what we mean when they talk about theology, they really talk about it in a broad sense. So for them, theology would be if you're if you're studying the book of Genesis, you're doing theology for in the English in the British uh, version of their understanding of that term. The task of theology would be anything having to do that comes under the umbrella of uh, biblical studies, uh, book studies, you know, uh, what we're defining as biblical theology. All of that would be considered theology. On, the, on this side of the Atlantic, uh, traditionally in our Anglophone world over here, 
we use theology, and what we typically mean by that is something called systematic theology or doctrine. We talk about theology as the theological topics, God, sin, human nature, um, uh, eschatology. So we talk about theology, we often mean systematic theology, which I'll distinguish here in just a second. So you see already, just with the term theology, there's kind of this, uh, this range, this semantic range of meaning of what we refer to when we say or use that term in different contexts. Uh, and that just makes it more difficult to define biblical theology. But in its general sense, we're talking about serious discourse of, uh, about God or reflection about God. Now, when we talk about biblical theology, again, we run into the same issue here because at some level, if you're doing uh, discourse, if you're doing a study, the study of God and you're using the Bible as a primary source in that study, well, in that sense, you're doing biblical theology. You're doing theology that's derived from Scripture. But that's not necessarily what we mean by biblical theology in our context. Um, we're getting at something that's both a method and an activity. So there's a certain... Uh, biblical theology is really a task. It's really a, something that we do, not just something that is. And that's what I want to try to, to show you today when we look at First Peter. Um, so this sense in which anyone doing serious thinking about God and using the Bible, that, of course, is in some sense biblical theology. Um, even if you're formulating, uh, say, a systematic treatment of some particular topic in the Bible, let's say the doctrine of God, even if you're doing some systematic theology, that, that is still informed by the Bible and in some sense is still biblical. But a more common usage of this term is really meant to distinguish what we're calling biblical theology from something like systematic theology or doctrinal statements. Um, And we have some designations of other types of theology like historical theology or pastoral theology. Um, Historical theology, looking at the historical development of certain ideas in the church that have modified or evolved over time. Um, Looking at a particular... Um, individual, like John Calvin, for example, and the theology of John Calvin. That would be an example of historical theology. Um, Pastoral theology, if we're taking the principles of theology and applying it to the practice of the church, now we're talking about pastoral theology. Sometimes it's called practical theology, but I don't like that that term because it, it seems to imply that if you're not applying it to the church, then it isn't practical. I mean, all theology is practical. If you're doing a word study on um, uh, nefesh in Hebrew, uh, which is how we, tra- we translate that soul, but that's problematic. If you're doing a word study on nefesh, you're still doing practical theology. That's practical at some level, even though you're not immediately applying it to the church. So um, just keeping that in mind, of all the different kind of senses we're using this, but we use biblical theology to distinguish it from these other kinds of theological uh, tasks, these theological uh, uh, methods. So systematic theology, just by way of distinction, is what is what most of us are familiar with when we talk about theology. We have something like this in mind. It looks at theological topics uh, logically and atemporally, okay? So that is, it looks at how all this data that we get from Scripture can be fitted together as a whole without a lot of consideration given to how it's been revealed across redemptive history. It asks questions like, uh, that is uh, systematic theology, asks questions like, who is God? What is sin? What is the nature of man or humanity, to be more politically correct? And that's not even politically correct anymore, is it? Um, so systematic, or you'd ask, uh, what does the cross achieve? Okay, Those are all questions that systematic theology or the process of systematic theology would attempt to answer. We answer those questions systematically. We look at what the Bible teaches about those. Um, and we try to piece it together in this logical, doctrinal 
form. Um, it is not concerned with the particular contribution of Isaiah, for example. You're not asking for how a particular theme works through Scripture. You're asking for what the whole Bible teaches about one particular subject, sometimes even artificially. It, that is, it doesn't arise naturally from a reading or studying of the text, but rather you're coming at the text already with a predefined topic that you're looking for information about. So this process often begins with Scripture, but it ends with something like a doctrinal statement or a theological treatise. Okay, that's systematic theology. That's And, and I'm not trying to suggest that that is a um, somehow inferior thing. I think systematic theology is incredibly important for the church. It's incredibly important important for us. And we have a whole other section, I think, in our series that's devoted to systematic theology. So I don't want to get too, too, too far down that road. Um, my own interest in theology began in systematics. Uh, I became fascinated with the world of theology um, in my early college years, and most of the books I was reading uh, had to do with systematic theology. That's what I understood theology to be. Um, But thankfully, I've grown and have uh, encountered biblical theology, and I've come to appreciate it more and more as I move forward. So, biblical theology, by contrast to systematic theology, is more interested in the temporal development of theological themes across the whole sweep of redemptive history. And likewise, across the whole meta-narrative or the overarching story of the Bible. And this really works out in three ways as we understand it in this, in this context. So this could be looking at a particular book of the Bible or what's sometimes called a corpus, that is a body of literature all coming from the same author. Uh, you know, We could look at Genesis as a book of Moses or take a look at the entire Pentateuch. And we ask questions about, well, what does Genesis contribute to um, the Pentateuch? And then what does Genesis contribute to the whole canon of Scripture? Or what does the Pentateuch contribute to the whole canon of Scripture in terms of its theological con- uh, content? What does, it talk, uh, what does it say about God? Um, those are the questions that biblical theology asks. So we're looking not at these artificial um, uh, topical ideas and asking what does the Bible say about those. We're looking at the Bible and asking what is the Bible talking about and how do we trace that through and fit it in with the whole context. Um, so instead of asking what's the doctrine of God or what is the proper doctrine of eschatology, um, the question is what is the particular set of theological emphases in this particular book? or this particular author, or this particular set of books? Um, What is the particular contribution of the Gospel of John? How does the Gospel of John differ from the Gospel of Luke? Where does John's theology fit within the scope of redemptive history compared with where Paul fits, compared with where Moses fits? You see, we're asking very different kinds of questions here. Um... One task of biblical theology would be, say, to outline the, the book of uh, outline the theology of Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah. What is Nehemiah contributing to the theological understanding of the scriptures? So we're going to be thinking through themes. We're going to be thinking through the arguments of a particular author. We're going to be and how they fit with the broader scheme. Uh, we're going to be thinking about. Um, uh, their priorities, right? Nehemiah is emphasizing, emphasizing something very different than Jeremiah. So biblical theology is very much interested in the theological synthesis, synthesis not of topics, but rather of, of contributions of biblical books at different levels. And you can see why this is difficult to, to, it's difficult to, to, to come up with a working definition for biblical theology. There's There's a lot going on, so I'm really trying to characterize it for you more than I am define it. It's a characterization more than a definition. Um, So the advantage is that, uh, the advantage of doing uh, a a biblical theology is that you will be sensitive or become sensitive to the nuances of the literary contribution 
of these texts in Scripture. So literary analysis, nuance, and what we saw already in some of the things that have been said uh, by Nathan is these literary nuances, these connections, these symbols, these themes, all start to emerge and provide us with a a more mature understanding of what God's trying to tell us in his word. So the Bible is, after all, divine literary art. Now, it's more than that, but it's at least that. This is artwork. This is literature at its best. And if we don't understand and appreciate that, we're going to have a hard time appreciating the content of the Bible and the message of the Bible. And this is why we, the Bible, um, you know, the, the, the type of attitude that says, hey, you know, this book or, you know, the church churches that hold their Bible up, hold up your Bible above your head and say, I don't even know what they chant. They say, this is my Bible or something. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, you know, you set it on the dashboard of your pickup truck and think that's going to protect you from getting in a car wreck, right? The Bible is like this uh, lucky charm. The Bible, like the thing itself, is somehow magical. Um, and then the words are sort of magical. You know, you can open up to a passage and, and you read it and God's got a word for you for the day or something. Well, the problem with that is that's much more like a, you know, that's much more like a, a Muslim view of, of scripture, whereas, you know, it's like dictation and there's magic in that process of, you know, Muhammad dictates the, the word, or excuse me, Muhammad dictates the word to the prophet and he writes it down and there's only one version, right? That's why there's no authorized translation of the, of, uh, the Quran is because that's the only, those words are the only words. But for the Christian, it's the message of the Bible. It's, it's the message of the Bible that's important. This is why we can read the Bible in translation. This is why the Christian church has never had a problem with translating the Bible into the vernacular. Because we can communicate the message of God to people through words. It's the message of Jesus that's important, not the the individual words themselves. So we don't worship the words. We we worship what those words tell us about God. Or we don't worship that either. We worship God that is communicated through uh, the word. So we have to have a, a, um, a healthy view of the nature of Scripture in order to do biblical theology. Is what I'm is what I'm talking about here. Um, so this is an anthology of literature. We have we have books of all sorts here. We have authors spanning uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, we have all kinds of different literature. We have to start to appreciate those those nuances. And when we're doing theology, we cannot escape that. I, I tried to buck this early in my uh, life. I didn't like the literary complexity of the Bible. Like, it just rubbed me wrong. I was naturally drawn to logic, precision, you know, from an engineering type of perspective, a mechanical view. And it, it, it took me a while to realize I can't, I can't fight that fight anymore. My personality and my own, you know, academic or intellectual interests can't come uh, above the nature of the Bible itself. God has given this book to me. This is, the, this is the form he's given it in, and I have to submit to that. And it's not until I did that and made a conscious decision to do that, um, and it really came through talking and reading with people who ex- exposed this in me, and I, became to, I came to appreciate that much more and... Um, and really, I'm glad I, I got out of that, that mood because um, there's a really, really amazing thing. I hope, I hope to show you a little bit of this in First Peter here in a second. But um, there were things I was just missing. I was just missing an appreciation for the Scripture because of that. And biblical theology is what, what helped, helped me. Um, so there's the moral of the story. Biblical theology can change your life um, if you just let it. No, I'm not doing a commercial. But if I were to do a video, that would be the message, Nathan. So there's that, um, that element of biblical theology that also traces themes through the Bible. This is very important, and we've already seen this implicitly. This happens all the time. If you listen to sermons, if you listen to lessons, uh, if you listen to anything that is taught in our context here, just in this church, biblical theology is being done every Sunday. It's being done in these lectures and we don't maybe even realize that that's what's happening, but that is. 
tracing themes to the scripture. So systematic theology will, will ask, what is the temple and what's its significance? But uh, biblical theology asks, where is the idea of temple first introduced in scripture? What is the storyline of the development of this temple motif? How does the garden temple of Eden help us understand the garden city of the New Jerusalem? And vice versa, you see? We're asking about the temple, but we're asking different questions of the temple. There are really about 20 such themes, I think, that control the whole storyline of the Bible. I'll name a few. Temple. Covenant. Priesthood. Sacrifice, exile, land, creation, new creation. And I could go on. There's about 20 of those, I think, in my estimation. 20 primary motifs or themes that control the story of the Bible, that unite the whole narrative together. Biblical theology is looking and reading with an eye toward those themes. There are also a whole host of other sub-themes, um, But we really, when doing biblical theology, want to see the interconnectivity between all of that. And what is it telling us? What is it teaching us? Because there is a didactic purpose to those elements. And so, you know, there's this ancient uh, question in philosophy about unity and diversity. And I think the Bible is a beautiful picture of how those two harmonize. There is a unity in the diversity of Scripture. Widely diverse. Read Genesis chapter 6 and scratch your head about the Nephilim, right? And then read something like um, uh, Ezekiel uh, 37, which I'll reference here in a minute. In fact, I think I'm going to preach on that text next week. But, um, you know, read that and then read, uh, uh, read, read the book of Acts and some of the scenarios you see there. And then read a, a letter of Paul. I mean, you don't, you don't have to go very far in the Bible to see there's all kinds of disparate and seemingly disconnected literature. But yet, there's a profound unity in that. In all of that diversity, there's a profound unity. And that's what we're looking for in biblical theology. We submit ourselves to that. We come to the text already as sufficient. It's sufficient to teach us. It is what it is. And we submit ourselves to that to learn from it. And then we have to do the work of seeing how it all fits together. So in a nutshell, that's biblical theology. Let me read you just a, a, an excerpt here from uh, a standard um, Bible dictionary. I think it does a great job of summarizing this, this idea. And then we're going to move into looking at uh, some, uh, an example of this. So it defines biblical theology this way. And I looked at, at about uh, 15 different definitions out of uh, some dictionaries. And I think this really captures the spirit of what I'm trying to communicate here. So biblical theology is the discussion of what the Bible itself teaches about God and his dealings with human beings and the rest of creation. Biblical theology has existed, I love this, biblical theology has existed since the Bible was written. For instance, in Deuteronomy 1.11, Moses described and interprets God's past action on Israel's behalf recorded in Exodus. Numbers, uh, excuse me, in Exodus. In Numbers, um, I'm sorry, Exodus and Numbers, and even as he discloses more divine revelation to them. So Moses is doing biblical theology. Samuel interprets Israel's past theologically in 1 Samuel 8.12. Stephen does this in Acts 7. And the list of examples could be extended just how in the Bible the biblical authors are actually doing this biblical theology. Biblical theology certainly originated in Bible times, but its formal modern academic introduction into discussions of this as a a notion really happened in 1787 with a guy named J.P. Gabler. And so he asserted the need for biblical theology to stand over against systematic theology, which we've already distinguished, so that the church and its doctrine would not, uh, the church's doctrine systematically would not predetermine the meaning of biblical texts because the danger is when you're coming to the text already with preconceived notions uh even even doctrinal notions uh that can be dangerous and that and they saw this happening 
So biblical theology, Gabler says, biblical theology needs to be distinguished from that process so we can safeguard doctrine. Um, so there's just kind of a, a general consensus of sort of a, what I would say, a, um, a pretty standard definition of, of how biblical theology is understood in modern contexts. Now, there are some scholars out there who have their own nuanced approach to this and will argue the details. But for us today, I just want to kind of give you a characterization, try to get you to have a concept of what we talk about when we say biblical theology. That's, that's what I'm referring to here. Now, let's take a look um, at a, um, a passage here. And to set up the passage, I want to just remind us that... Um, Part of the, the work we do in the church is to help people uh, live in the world of the Bible. Um, we, wanna, we don't want people to, to, to understand the Bible through the world. We want people to understand the world through the Bible. And so the task of biblical theology is really about discipleship. Biblical theology helps us in terms of our maturity, of seeing the world aright. And the only way we see the world aright is through new eyes, right? Uh, just like uh, Jordan tells us. And we have to understand the world through the Bible. And if we're going to do that, we have to live in the world of the Bible. And so there has to be this theological vision that we operate from, right? It has to be That has to be built in. If we're not operating out of a theological vision informed by the Scriptures and its unity, we're going to misinterpret our times. And so this is really comes down to not just methods of reading the Bible or study tools for understanding the Bible. This is about maturity and discipleship and ultimately personal holiness and faithfulness as individuals and as a community. So if we want to talk about practical application, I don't think I can't think of anything more practical than that. So in order to do biblical theology well, we have to learn to read every particular text in the whole Bible context. There's a great German word. I can't even say it. It's like, it's like 25 syllables long. But the, Germans, the German scholars have this word, which essentially means whole Bible biblical theology. Whole Bible biblical theology. And it's, it's already wordy in, in English, but in German it sounds just so much more fancy, and I wish I could say it. I probably just need to practice it so I can say it. Um, we want to be whole Bible biblical theologians. Um, because the Bible is a unity in diversity, there is this interconnectivity that we have to make. We have to piece it together. We, we may not be allowed to treat biblical texts ato- uh, atomically, just by themselves, in little, little piecemeals. Okay? So um, the concept of the Devo, which is now, you know, the devotional used to be the popular thing to do. Now it's the Devo because we... I guess devotional is too many syllables. Um, we had to call it a diva, which I, I don't know about you guys, but some abbreviations I just can't stand. Like, they don't sit well with me. You probably have your own peeves about that. Devo is one of them. I'm sorry. I just So uh, in, in some circles that I'm in, that term gets thrown out, and um, I, I cringe a little bit. I don't know why. But uh, it's like the word fam for family. When you can't say family. You have to say fam. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, So there was a time, though, in our recent history where um, I believe there was a truncated truncated approach in the church to handling the Bible. I think think I've heard many sermons in my my younger days uh, where I think back on them, and and I'm not that I can remember all the details, but I remember there was a style of preaching, a method of doing Bible study, that really only did that. It took particular texts and only focused on those texts. We never talked about how it connected to anything else. We just looked at what Peter said, and that's all we cared about at the time. It didn't matter. We didn't even raise the question. And I think there was a whole doctrine, there was a whole theological mood among evangelical Christians uh, within the past century that that, that, was do- that was the dominant form of, quote-unquote, Bible study and Bible preaching. And I think the day is dawning where that, that uh, period has been seen for what it is and what it suffered. Um, and I, I think I'm really pleased at what I'm seeing happening as this biblical theology idea has 
uh, taken root again. Um, and that was partly due the, to the constraints of the time, the cultural mood, those sorts of things. There's lots, there's, it's a complex uh, story. But nonetheless, we see some changes for the better, I think. Um, and this church is, is a part of that. In fact, there are, and I'll take a second to just look at a couple of books before we look at uh, First Peter. Um, there is an astounding number of publications about biblical theology coming out right now. If you go and look on Amazon and type in biblical theology, you're going to come up, you're going to have more than you can look at in, in, a, in an hour. Um, it's amazing what's being uh, put out there in terms of this whole movement. I want to uh, give you a couple of recommendations before we look at First Peter. If you're going to start somewhere, like just with a, an example of biblical theology, I think this book here, this monograph by uh, T. Desmond Alexander, who is a professor at Queen's University in Belfast, Ireland. Um, he's, a, he's a broadly reformed uh, conservative evangelical scholar. From Eden to the New Jerusalem, an introduction to biblical theology, outstanding. So I highly recommend that. If you just want to get started with a small type of uh, book there. He has another one about the Pentateuch, but also is in the same vein of biblical theology called From Promise, uh, excuse me, From Paradise to the Promised Land and Introduction to the Pentateuch. Outstanding. He does, he does excellent work. I've benefited greatly from him. And then some of the best work I think being done right now contemporarily, there's plenty of books to read about this. There's a whole series that was published by uh, InterVarsity Press. Um, it's called New Studies in Biblical Theology. There's about, I think there's upwards of 25 volumes now on all kinds of topics and uh, edited by D.A. Carson. Uh, these books are some of the best examples, I think, of biblical theology being done right now. Um, and these are, for, these are for the church. This isn't for just simply uh, scholars. Okay? These are accessible and I recommend this one highly. Uh, this one is probably the, large, the fattest one of the series. But G.K. Bill's The Temple and the Church's Mission. He takes the motif of temple. And with uh, this is probably one of the most exquisite examples of biblical theology that I've read uh, in, my, in my lifetime. He takes the, the idea of temple and connects it with the mission of the church. This is phenomenal. I think... If we had all the time in the world, we would take a year, men, and we would go through this page by page. All right. Commercial's over. Would you look at First Peter with me if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps? Let's turn to First Peter. I want to just uh, look at a few things. So, in context here, the task of biblical theology is really the task of understanding and embracing the whole Bible, the whole story, and seeing every piece in its broader context. So this, uh, this has to do with the, medita- the meta-narrative, the entire story. Okay, So we have to have the whole in view. We also need to be paying attention to the symbolism that's used because the symbolism is what connects the pieces of the story together. We also have the truths that flow out of that symbolism. And then we have the cultic practices that come from those truths. And I say cultic in, a, uh, in, the, in the sense of um, culture. We have a way of life that comes out of that. Okay, So there's four pieces. The meta-narrative, the symbols, the truths, and the, and the cultic practice. The culture that arises out of that. Biblical theology has all of those elements going on. So in First Peter, uh, the backdrop here is, um, let's just think of this... Uh, Actually, let me, let me just read the first uh, verse here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Okay, stop there. Peter is writing to Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, areas of Asia Minor there in the ancient Near East, first century. Okay? primarily Gentiles, but some Jewish Christians, because we know the Jews were established in a lot of these different cities. He calls them elect exiles. So let's just stop there for a second. Wait a second. They're not exiled. They're first century citizens of the Roman Empire. They're not exiled anywhere. They're in their hometown, some of them. 
Why is he calling them exiles? If we're thinking, if we're thinking from a biblical theological perspective, what comes to mind? Exiles. They were cast out, but who who are the exiles in Scripture? Well, where does exile first come up? The garden. So Peter begins his letter to these Christians with this notion of exile. He calls them elect exiles. And, of course, I think he has in mind here, right? God uh, chose Israel. He put, he, he put his love, his elect love on the nation of Israel and called them out as a peop- his, his people specifically. He's referring to the Christians in first century in these places as elect exiles. So I think there's two levels here, right? We have the exile of the garden. That's the first exile in Scripture. What happened in that exile? What, what was the context? They were exiled. What, why? Disobedience. They broke, in essentially, a covenant. But, of course, we have the paradigmatic exile, which was exile out of Egypt, right? Why were they in Egypt? Why were the Israelites in Egypt to begin with? To change the world, yes. There was a, the famine was the... Uh, right? Joseph had already been down there, right? So it was the, the, Joseph's brothers, right? Their sin was the cause of Joseph being in Egypt. Of course, ultimately the Hebrews themself, uh, themselves came down, right? So they were exiled. Had the land already been promised at that point? So they were, they were not in the promised land. They were in exile, and yet the promise of the land was a dominant theme in Moses' teaching, in God's revelation. Right? So we have this, so we've got exile, we've got disobedience, we've got sin, we've got land. So if we're reading theolo- biblical, uh, we're, we're doing reading biblic- uh, biblically, theologically, notice the questions we have to be asking ourselves. Peter is writing to Christians and calling them exiles. We also have to remember that these men were writing in the Greek language, but they were Hebrew thinkers. All the apostles were Hebrew-minded men writing in the Greek language. They were thinking in terms of Hebrew thought forms, but they were expressing themselves in the Greek language. They were not Greek thinkers. They were influenced primarily by the Hebrew-Jewish tradition. Okay, So when they're talking about things and they say the word exile, think like a Hebrew hear exile, you go back to the beginning, the first exile, and then the second exile, right? We're talking about um, these, these main motifs, okay? That's biblical theology. So in uh, elect, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, okay, let's, let's go down just a second here. Um, so he's writing to the chosen exiles of the dispersion. Now, it's interesting to note that uh, this idea of being dispersed, right? Exiles were dispersed. That in, any, in any case, they're spread out. They're, they're sent away from their home. They're sent away from the core of their worship, right? For example, the Babylonian exile was uh, a great time of, of struggling and, and, and suffering for the, for the people of God because they had broken uh, their covenant with God. But at the same time, they were removed from his presence. Literally, they did not have the temple worship, the priestly sacrifices, they had none of that. Okay, um, So if you think of exile, the Bible connects return from exile with resurrection. And, and Peter's going to do this in his letter. Okay, So if you think about that, the whole house of Israel in Ezekiel 37 in their Babylonian exile is referred to as, or seen as, a valley of dry bones. They're dead. They're rattled. The whole house of Israel is dead. There is no hope. That's the image they're given. But yet, what does uh, Ezekiel do? He prophesies to the wind. God says to speak, to preach to them his word. And God raises this valley of bones into a mighty army. And so in verse 3, look what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us 
to be born again. You are exiles, but God has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So notice how he's connecting all these ideas. We have exile and resurrection hope, death and life, all coming together in the first three verses of Peter. Okay? This is nothing new. Peter's, all he's doing is echoing what's already been taught in the Old Testament. You see? But do we read the apostles this way? Is this what we think of when we go through the book of 1 Peter? Maybe. Verse 8, beautiful verse. I'm not going to point anything out about it except just to read it because it's so lovely. I'm just, I'm just doing uh, uh, high points here. Through you, uh, excuse me, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. A beautiful, that's just a beautiful verse there. But these are people, he says, look, you are exiled, you were dead, and Christ has risen and you are in him, so you have new life. You are a resurrected people. You are a resurrected people. Though you were exiled, you have been restored. The promise has been made and kept. And so though you do not, you do not see him, you love him and have this inexpressible joy. That's exactly what the prophets told and gave a vision to the Old Testament saints. That's, that was their vision. You are going to be restored, and that restoration is going to be joyful and eternal. So notice we're not even we're not even halfway through the first chapter of First Peter, and we have um, half of the main themes of the Old Testament are already being alluded to here. It's remarkable, and we can't get the weight of what Peter's teaching unless we do really understand their connectivity. Okay. Uh, um, Who's the proprietor of the Bible Project? Uh, the scholar up there. What's his name? Anyone know? I really like him. Uh, Tim Mackey. Tim Mackey likes to call these hyperlinks. He, he uses that term like digital technology. You have hyperlinks. You know, you click on a link, it takes you somewhere else. He talks about these in terms of hyperlinks. I like that, right? First, uh, Peter is hyperlinking all of these images, all of this theological vision, all of this uh, this teaching about God and his way of salvation. And he's hyperlinking back to all these things and saying, this is true for you right now. The church, the church is the recipient of these promises. And this pattern that God established from the very beginning is the same way you have been rescued. The way he rescued Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the land, the way he restored them after the Babylonian example, uh, uh, exile and brought them back into the land, that's exactly the same way you Christians have been have been restored in Christ. So he's taking the paradigm, he's taking this framework that the Old Testament has set up, and he's plugging in Christians in his context. We can't miss that. We this is the application for us. We have to see ourselves in that story. <clears throat> um Look at verses 10 and 12 real quick. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, it's no surprise that he even mentions the prophet by name here or mentions them as a group here because he's already, he has them in mind. He has them in mind from the very beginning. He can't not think of them. He is biblically saturated. The stories of the Old Testament are part of his mental world. He can't talk about this outside of these terms. So he mentions the prophet. He says, look, they were working for you. Yes, they, had, they played a function in their day. Yes, they were helping the uh, people of God to see these truths and to understand God's word and to understand God's promises and his faithfulness. But he says even further... They were doing this for your sakes. They were serving us, is what Peter is saying. Through careful search and inquiry, he's telling them that the Old Testament was written about the salvation that you now enjoy. This is not a new teaching. It's a new revelation. But it's not something God... It's like God didn't just decide to have a new way of saving his people. 
This was the way God had always saved his people. It's just come to a culmination. And now you Gentiles get to partake in this. That's a wonderful truth. Verse 13 is real interesting. Uh, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Now, some of you, uh, depending on your translation, I'm reading out of the ESV. And I wish they would have done this a little more literally here, but that's okay. It has a footnote that actually does it. Uh, Your translation might say, therefore, girding up the loins of your mind. What does the New King James uh, say there? Gird up the loins. Okay, it uses the more literal translation. Yeah. So therefore, girding up the loins of your mind and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace, etc. Girding up your loins. Now that's that rings a bell. When when did the people of God gird up their loins? Um, before that, before the Promised Land. I mean, the hints are already here. Even if you don't know specifically, what would you guess? This girding up of the loins, the loincloths, grabbing them up. Why would they be grabbing up their loincloths? Where are they going? This is the Exodus. They were told to gird up their loins and get out of town. God was about to to do something with the Egyptians. They girded up their loins and left. Notice in the context of what Peter's saying here, given the paradigm, what is he doing? He's just walking us through the ancient paradigm of God's salvation of, of Exodus, Exodus and restoration, Exodus and restoration. This pattern is very prevalent. And notice he's even using, lang- using language that points us back to that. That's what biblical theology is about. So we ask ourselves, girding up the loins of your mind. Now, get it as a metaphor. Okay, we, we prepare our minds. We, we stand fast. You know, we, we get ready. But he's doing more than that. Yes, we do that. But we're doing that as those who were being rescued out of darkness and death. Doesn't that add another dimension to the power of that message? I think so. It's not just, hey, uh, get your act together because you have somewhere to go. Okay. No, you're girding up your loin, the loins of your mind, like the, like the Hebrews girded up their loins because God was about to destroy their enemies. He's saying here, Christians, your enemies have been destroyed. That's the hope that you have. That's what he says. Be so reminded. Set your hope fully on the grace. That's happened. Yes. I don't know. I think that would be in the imaginative realm. I'm not sure I could extract it from this text. But that certainly is part of the paradigm, isn't it? Like something, God's about to do something amazing and catastrophic. That usually goes along with girding up your loins. And he says, he's telling church, I mean, remember, these are first century Christians. Their life was in the Roman Empire was not easy. They were seen as a threat to not only just the political system, but also to everyday life. They were hated. And I wonder, too, there's, there's things like that in, say, even the book of Romans, where there was hints that hey, there's some major catastrophe that's about to happen that's coming. And I wonder, and, and this seems in that same vein, I wonder if they're referencing something like uh, 87. It's, I think it very well could be, because if we go on further, we don't have time to look at the whole thing here. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. But if we trace it out, we're going to look at the whole theme of suffering. He's about to bring up suffering. Christ has suffered. He's going to call us to be in that same vein, to suffer ourselves. And so I think suffering is very much in the backdrop here. And it's not like the Israelites had a free ticket out of uh, Egypt and then everything was smooth sailing from then on, right? They still got to go to Sinai. They still have to, they still have to endure all kinds of things and reveal uh, their own sin and God's faithfulness, etc. So yes, there's all that. It's like these hyperlinks. They're alluding to images, but those images have a whole story around them, and we have to bring in the whole story. So that's a good point. Yeah. Okay, did you have a question or uh, comment? Yeah, so speaking of suffering, it also reminds me of when God speaks to Job about the whirlwind, and after Job's going through all of his suffering, God says to Job, gird up your voice, and essentially prepare the talk Yeah, I didn't even think about that connection. Huh. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. And... Um, what I'm trying to get you to see is, I, I wish, I mean, we don't have time to do an exposition of First Peter, although that would be awesome. Uh, not that I'd be really qualified to do it well, but there's so much going on here. 
that we don't that we miss, right? We miss if we don't have a mind for biblical theology. Like this is what we do. We we look at these things. We pay attention to the particulars, right? Nathan was talking about the rules. We we read particularly. We look at the particulars, girding up your minds. Well, in the context that he's already set up the Exodus pattern, that fits right in. This is carrying forward. Okay. So do you think this was an accident? Do you think Peter wasn't conscious of this at all and that God just, you know, dictated it so it would happen that way? No, of course. Uh, God's working through Peter's own consciousness. Peter knows these things. And he's, he's teaching through them. God is teaching us through them. So, uh, girding up your loins. Uh, verse 15, um, we have this quote, right? This quote from the Old Testament, you shall be holy for I am holy, comes out of Numbers. In fact, it's reiterated several times. Um, in fact, it's interesting, that, that actually comes from that context when, when uh, God is giving the Israelites these food laws, what animals they can eat and not eat, and then he comes up with this, you're going to be holy because I am holy. Seems awkward to us, right? We have food laws, and then God says, be holy. Be holy by doing these things. But he quotes it here. Well, that's no surprise, is it? I'm not surprised he's quoting, uh, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's right in the context of the Exodus and what God's doing with them afterward. God has saved his people, and he's telling them, I'm sanctifying you through this. Peter says, Christians, you're being sanctified. God has restored you through the resurrection. He's given you new life, and you are now being sanctified. Here are your responsibilities. Take, you know, take this seriously. That's, that's a message to us. But it's through these images of these paradigms. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he is. He's walking us through the law. Pretty remarkable. I mean, and it, this is only the beginning. I mean, wait, there's more. Um, verse 18. I don't have time for much more, but the time I do have, I want to I show you. Look at verse 18. Um, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Ransomed. Is there a biblical motif of ransom? You were ransomed, yes. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So, uh, I'm in verse 18 of chapter 1. I think if we read the whole, uh, there's several sentences there that actually go together. Probably, I'm sure the the meaning is very similar there. I don't think we're dealing with an opposite. But this idea, I just want to point out the word ransom here. Ransom. hmm. And then verse 19, what does he say? He says, um, not with perishable things, he keeps going, but with the precious blood of Christ. So ransoming with blood, like that of a lamb without blemish. I'm thinking of the Passover. Well, that was a significant part of the um, Exodus story, wasn't it? So here we have the Passover element. So do you see he's, he's building out, he's sketching out the whole story of God's redemptive work paradigmatically in the Exodus, but even some of this, the same pattern plays out even in the Babylonian exile and their restoration back to Israel. This is remarkable. This is something we should be excited about, I think, because it, it makes it real for us. This is not just a, a reminder. Don't forget, Christians, you know, you, Jesus died for you and you need to be holy. Okay, well, no, this, this brings us into the poetry of God's story. And you and I fit in there, and our church fits in there, and the church and the kingdom uh, in the world fits into this. We are actively participating in God's salvation history. That is no small thing. A couple more things, and then I'll I'll wrap up here. Um, What do they do after they come to Sinai, uh, after the giving of the law and all that? What's the next stage in in their process? Tabernacle. What does, God, uh, what does he say? Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Um, excuse me, I lost my place. Okay. Uh, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. 
Now we have a spiritual house being built. Tab- tabernacle-ish. Right? So we have this idea of, right, and you, you gave the illustration of the temple being built like a body. Right? It's like Paul telling the Corinthians, you know, you are the temple of God. I mean, we're making that connection very clear. Peter's alluding to that here in, in this. So we could just go on and on and on. I don't have time to get into even the sufferings of Christ, which is what he's saying. Uh, he calls Jesus the good shepherd. My goodness, the shepherd motif in, in the Bible, that's significant. We could go back to uh, Abel, right? Adam. Well, Adam was, was more of a gardener, but Abel. We have Moses. We have Joseph. We have David, who becomes the paradigmatic shepherd leader of his people. He says Jesus is the new shepherd. And he says, you followed his footsteps through his suffering. Jesus was the good shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And he applies that to pastors in the church. He said, pastors, you are the shepherds and overseers of your flock, just as Jesus is over his. You have the responsibility of suffering and sacrifice on behalf of your congregation, on behalf of your flock. Uh, so he makes all those connections. So he, he develops this theological, typological uh, biblical theology of salvation in the first part of his letter, and then he extends the applications to how this church, these particular churches, were to to live in light of that. It's amazing. It's remarkable. And I'm over time, and I'm sorry. I ran, I ran Randy off, and so I don't know. Took too much of his time. Actually, I don't know. When did I start? I started about an hour ago. Okay, so I'm I'm good. Any any last uh, thoughts or questions? Yeah. What does it use? Yeah, pilgrim. So okay. It really does. Well, it's not as clear, but a pilgrim. Uh, pilgrims of the dispersion, which. That phrase, by, uh, to, taken together, does indicate they've been scattered and there is a, a longing to return. But, but you're right. I prefer exile. But Yeah, and so I haven't, done, I haven't done the hard work of word study on that particular Greek term, um, and so that would probably be required to really get down to the bottom of it. I do, I do think there's good reason to, to translate exile. And I think given, the, given what Peter's teaching, it makes, they're making, they're making, this is why translations are interpretations, right? They're, they're interpreting the context by using the word exile instead of pilgrim. The Greek that we're talking about is the word parapidemos, which denotes somebody who lives for a time in a country that is not their own. Ah. And that makes them a stranger, potentially a person living in exile, uh, a pilgrim or sojourner, but it's not somebody who's just passing through, like when I came down here from Michigan, I drove to Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they set up housekeeping, but they're not from that country. And that matches um, the exile, I mean the, uh, the exodus, and it also matches um, where... Uh, in the New Testament, we're, we're told that he has rescued us from the dominion or kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So by being born again, like it says in chapter 1 of the First Peter, uh, we are born again as citizens of a different country, but for now, in this life, we live in this temporal world as well. And that kind of matches our, our, our temporal experience. Whatever country you were born in, you automatically have citizenship. And Peter is saying that by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, we have been given new birth into God's kingdom. We are citizens of that kingdom primarily, and that makes us these sojourners, these exiles, living in this country for a time, but not citizens of this country anymore. We're citizens of God's country. Yes, exactly. Thank you for the clar- clarification. So exile fits very well in that. You could, you could make pilgrim fit too. Um, and the idea is, he's talking to these, think about it, first, sometimes we forget what the first century world was like. These are Roman citizens in the first century. These are Christians meeting in homes, uh, facing persecution, facing ridicule, life and death. And, and, and Peter's telling them, you're exiles here. But 
the promise of God, He's restoring you to the land. His word is sure. He even, he even references Isaiah, where Isaiah is talking, the, the whole comfort, Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort ye my people. He, he, he quotes that in his letter. And that is Isaiah's foretold promise of hope even before they go into exile again. So Isaiah's prophecy, prophesying about exile, and then he's prophesying about the hope they're going to have in exile to be restored to the land. You see, Peter's bringing all that back in to the minds of these Christians and telling them, you are exiled, you are chosen exiled, and there is a land of promise that I will for sure bring you to. It's already, you're already actually there, kind of, right? It's, it's like already but not yet, reality of the kingdom of God after Christ. We're already there. We're living out the kingdom as it's coming, but it yet is yet to be consummated fully. So, it, yeah, it's just, it's wonderful. And so that's biblical theology. I mean, that's the discussion we have. We, we, we make those connections. We see it in light of God's redemptive pattern. And we put ourselves in that story too. And we ask, and Peter tells the application of that. I mean, it's interesting. After chapter 2, he mentions marriage. He starts applying all of this to the marriage relationship. So it's not, it's not, this is not just spiritual talk, right? It, this happens, this that has to do with you going home today and how you relate to your wife. I mean, that's the beauty of it. So biblical theology in a nutshell. All right, let's, let's give thanks. Lord, we do thank you for your word, uh, the magnificence of your truth, and for the beauty of this story we call the gospel. So Lord, may uh, we grow more and more in it, and uh, may it be the foundation of our perspective on the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.